If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Psalm and chapter 4. Okay, Psalm 4. This, is, uh, this will be our last week of our fifth annual summer in the Psalms. I pray it's been fruitful uh, for you. Jack served us well last week from Psalm 3. The next week, we're going to jump back into our study on the Gospel of Luke. And so we'll be at the beginning of chapter 16 in Luke next week. Okay, but for today... We're in Psalm 4. Uh, we've explained the last several weeks, but it can't hurt to explain again kind of what we're doing in Summer in Psalms, is we pick four selected psalms. Uh, we try to cover different genres, and I'll mention that here again in a little bit. Um, and so this week, we're going to look at a psalm of lament um, in Psalm 4, and then we'll, we'll kind of explain that as we go. So it'll be behind me on the screen as well in my translation uh, for you to follow along. I'll be in the New American Standard uh, today. Uh, if you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's read this together. Psalm 4, the Holy Spirit says, For the choir director on stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Amen. This is God's word. May God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. I sometimes wish there were more Christian songs that were sad. Do you? Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with songs that are joyful. In fact, we need those too. But I wonder, where are all the sad songs from a Christian perspective? Can you think of any? Uh, when was the last time you heard a song with a sorrowful bent on one of the popular Christian radio stations? When was the last time one of your favorite Christian contemporary artists released a song that we could call Lament? Uh, why aren't there more songs of lament in our modern Christian singing? Should there be? Now, as you know, as I mentioned a minute ago, uh, this is our fifth year doing Summer in the Psalms, and we pick four or five psalms from different genres every year, and there are seven different genres of psalms, seven different genres. Yet, if you've been here for the last five years, you might have noticed that we include a lament every year. Why is that? For several reasons. Let me give you three. For one, there are more lament psalms than there are any other genre in the psalms. Which means, second, that it would be the most frequent kind of song sung by Jesus and the early church because the, psalm, the psalms were their hymn book. And third, because for whatever you are going through in life, for whatever you are feeling, there is a psalm that matches it. And sometimes we are not feeling happy. Don Whitney said, within the breadth of 150 psalms, you can find the entire range of human emotion. You will never go through anything in life in which you cannot find the root emotion reflected in the psalms. 
exhilaration, frustration, discouragement, guilt, forgiveness, joy, gratitude, dealing with enemies, contentment, discontentment, you name it, they're all found in the book of Psalms. Church Father Athanasius said, whatever your particular need or trouble, from the same book you could select a form of words to fit it. So, since the Psalms cover the range of human emotions, they necessarily include frequent laments. About a third of them are laments. Why? Because living life in a fallen world inevitably and frequently will drive us to lament. Isn't that true? So what we need are songs, are hymn books that matches our actual human experience. God gave this to us, which is why we have the book of Psalms, right? Every time you go through a lament psalm, I have to mention this article that I encourage you to read when you get some time today, this afternoon, okay? It's called, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? That's the title of the article, and it was written by Carl Truman about a dozen years ago. Truman asks why the Bible's own hymn book, the Psalms, have dropped almost entirely from view in the contemporary Western evangelical scene. And then he answers, he says, I have an instinctive feeling that it has more than a little to do with the fact that a high proportion of the Psalter is taken up with lamentation, with feeling sad, unhappy, tormented, and broken. In modern Western culture, these are simply not emotions which have much credibility. Now, the next part, I'm going to read you a quote from his article. It's longer than I typically read, but what he says is important, so listen. He says, quote, Perhaps the Western church feels no need to lament, but then it is sadly deluded about how healthy it really is in terms of numbers, influence, and spiritual maturity. Perhaps, and this is more likely, it has drunk so deeply at the well of modern Western materialism that it simply does not know what to do with such cries and regards them as little short of embarrassing. Yet he says the human condition is a poor one, and Christians who are aware of the deceitfulness of the human heart and are looking for a better country should know this. A diet of unremittingly jolly choruses and hymns inevitably creates an unrealistic horizon of expectations which sees the normative Christian life as one long triumphalist street party, a theologically incorrect and pastorally disastrous scenario in a world of broken individuals. In the Psalms, God has given the church a language which allows it to express even the deepest agonies of the human souls in the context of worship. Does our contemporary language of worship reflect the horizon of expectations regarding the believer's experience which Psalter proposes as normative? If not, why not? Is it because the comfortable values of Western middle-class consumerism have silently infiltrated the church? and made us consider such cries irrelevant, embarrassing, and a sign of abject failure. By excluding the cries of loneliness, dispossession, and desolation from its worship, the church has effectively silenced and excluded the voices of those who are themselves lonely, dispossessed, and desolate, both inside and outside the church. By doing so, it has implicitly endorsed the banal aspirations of consumerism, and generate an insipid, trivial, and unrealistically triumphalist Christianity and confirmed its impeccable credentials as a club of the complacent, end quote. Russell Moore shared a similar sentiment, saying that in the last generation, even a mournful song about crucifixion was pepped up with a jingly-sounding chorus. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am what? Happy all the day. 
Then he says this, by not speaking where the Bible speaks to the full range of human emotion, including loneliness, guilt, desolation, anger, fear, desperation, we only leave our people there. Wondering why they can't just be Christian enough to smile through it all. What Truman and Moore are saying is what we all know to be true, right? Which is that life is hard, yes, and oftentimes very confusing. It isn't a long, triumphalist street party, even for Christians. So where can you find words to match your sorrow when you're feeling downcast and confused? Apparently not in the most popular songs of modern Christendom, so where can you go? See, this is why the Holy Spirit inspired various psalmists to write psalms of lament. To give us words to pray and to sing when life is hard or when we're confused or anxious or afraid. Not only do they give us words to our struggles, but they're also intensely practical. As they help us guide us through in what we should do when we feel wounded or betrayed or angry or frustrated or weary. And the psalm before us today does just that. Not only does it give us words to put to our feelings of pain or confusion, but it can actually help us know what to do when we feel like this, which is what we'll consider for the rest of our time together this morning, okay? And we'll, we'll do that by considering three main points. And let me just give them to you, okay? Let me give them to you straight away. Point number one, we'll call remember. Point number one, remember. Point number two, remind. Remind. And point number three is rest. Okay? Remember, remind, and rest. So first, let's consider remember. So like last week in Psalm 3, uh, this psalm is a lament, but unlike last week, we don't know the context in which this psalm was written, right? Some speculate that it was the same context of Psalm 3, uh, that, that of being David fleeing from Absalom, but we have no evidence that that's the case whatsoever. What we do know is that David wrote it, right? You have that heading in your Bible, and he wrote it in the context in which, listen, he felt both distress and confidence. Both distress and confidence in God's provision and rescue. So whatever the exact situation, verse 2 tells us that David is lamenting his enemies' attempts to ruin him. They are apparently throwing out false accusations against him that were designed to bring him disgrace. Whoever his enemies are, they appear to be gossips and slanders who are in a campaign to try to ruin David's reputation. They want to turn opinions of people against David. They aren't interested in truth, and they aren't really trying to accomplish anything except to make David look bad and for people to hate him or not trust him. So he asked them in verse 2, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? These are rhetorical questions, okay, at his opponents. He doesn't seek an answer. He's simply showing them how foolish what they're doing is and wondering aloud how long they will continue this evil tactic. So David is feeling attacked and he's feeling helpless. And the ambiguity of what he is going through, I think, is helpful to us 
Because no matter what you go through in seasons of trial and struggle, David's approach here in this situation can be adopted by you and to help you navigate hardships. The very first thing he does is the very first thing we should all do in any situation, good or bad. And what is that? It is to go to God and bring him the plea. Now, you might be thinking, duh, right? But is God always, let me ask, is God always the first place we go to in our distress? David says in verse 1b, so the second part of verse 1, that God relieved him from his distress. And you notice in your Bible, that word distress is uh, in the past tense, isn't it? And that word, make a note of that word distress, because it means something like being in a tight place or being in a bind. Okay, So it's like our English phrase, stuck between a rock and a hard place. Have you ever felt like that before? Have you ever felt like you were in a difficult, restricting situation that you weren't sure how you are going to get out of it or make it through? Has that ever happened to you before? And what do we typically do? We want to say that we go to God, but oftentimes God isn't our first stop because we want to try to figure out, yes, how to get ourselves out of it. We want to rely on our intellect, our ingenuity, our cunning, our ability to control situations. And we feel like we've lost control. Our desire is to figure out how we can regain it. We've all been sold, all of our lives, how awesome we are, yes? And how individualistic we should be. And how we need to be strong and competent. And the truly great ones in society are those who do it themselves. Am I lying? And since that's been the incessant message since we were little kids, why wouldn't that spill over into every aspect in our lives, especially including our spiritual lives? All the time we hear cries from people complaining about others who don't make their own way. We hear how awful participation trophies are, right? And any kind of handout is awful. Why? Because we need to be self-sufficient, individualistic, do-it-yourselfers. So we must try to figure out things for ourselves. Our brains have been so conditioned that to even go to God as the first stop is embarrassing because, well, because then we have to admit we're not so strong. Who wants to do that? That, That's why some never get the gospel at all, isn't it? This is precisely why Truman said we don't sing songs of lament because that would cramp our style and contradict how we live our lives which is as autonomous individuals who can figure things out on our own. So the inevitable struggle of life comes. And our minds begin to race about how we can overcome this. Have you done that? See, the reason you guys aren't responding is because you're still holding on to this idea that I can't admit (laughs) that I've been there. We inevitably fail when we try to control and overcome things on our own to be the heroes of the story and our own rescuers. And then when we're really desperate, then we can go to God in desperation. So instead of God being the first stop, he's the last resort. But David's first resort is to go to God because he remembers, look, he remembers who God is. 
And he knows that he's desperate from the start. He doesn't try to solve it and then end up desperate. He begins desperate with a proper assessment of his circumstances and admits his desperation without delay. When David asks God to hear him, he isn't actually wondering if God has ears to hear what he says. He knows God hears him. His plea is rather that God would be gracious and that thus would respond favorably to David's request. He's looking for unmerited favor from God because he's under no delusion that he has earned any good thing from God. He knows God, verse 1, is his righteousness. Not that he has any righteousness or merit of his own that would commend himself to God. But David is confident, isn't he? And why? Because God is not death like man-made idols are, and he is full of grace and mercy and abounding in steadfast love. David has no doubt that God will hear him because unlike the worthless things that David's enemies love and worship, David's God is a God who sees and hears and knows all things perfectly at all times, and he cares about his people's plight. So neither David's prayers nor ours is to give God information, is it? He knows everything already. In fact, did you know this? Prayer is not for God at all. It's for you. So that you can learn more and more to rely on God and trust in Him and create the rhythm to run to Him and to run to Him and to run to Him as your first stop, no matter the circumstances, no matter the trouble, no matter the rock and hard place you're stuck in. And even when you think He's not acting on your plea, you're going, you are to keep going to Him anyway. Over and over again without ceasing. True desperate prayer wouldn't be going to God once, petitioning him, and then giving up if he doesn't answer immediately and or in a way that we want. D.A. Carson said, many of us in our praying are like nasty little boys who ring front doorbells and run away before anyone answers. That's not what the psalmist does here, is it? Look, look again at your text. How does he bookend the first verse? He begins with, answer when I call, then he ends with, hear my prayer. Then in verse 3, he says, the Lord, this confidence, right? The Lord hears me when I call to him. He is persistent and confident that God both hears and cares and that he will answer his plea. We wait on him, not vice versa. Do you remember? Of course you do. When Christian was talking to Hopeful and Pilgrim's Progress, you know you guys are experts at Pilgrim's Progress, Hopeful and Christian were walking and they were talking and Hopeful was recounting to Christian about when Faithful told him how to be saved. And Hopeful said that Faithful told him to go to God and pray and that God would reveal Jesus to him. And so Christian asked him, did you do exactly as you were told? And Hopeful said, oh yes, over and over and over. And Christian asked, did the Father reveal the Son to you? And Hopeful's face grew thoughtful. Then he said, not the first, nor the second, nor the third, nor the fourth. No, not the fifth, nor even the sixth time either. And Christian asked him, did you ever have thoughts of giving up on praying? And Hopeful said, yes, at least a hundred times and then another hundred. What was the reason you did not give up? Hopeful shrugged and said that he did not give up because he believed what he was told was true, which is that without the righteousness of Christ, all the world couldn't save him. 
He thought that if he stopped praying and then he died, then he wanted to die at the throne of grace. But Christ was eventually revealed to him, and this is the key. I want you to listen to this part especially. He said, one day I was very sad. I think I was sadder than any other time in my life, and this bout of sadness was the result of a fresh insight of the greatness and vileness of my sins. And as I was anticipating nothing but hell and the everlasting damnation of my soul, suddenly I thought I saw the Lord Jesus looking down from heaven, and he called to me saying, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. See, hopeful did not give up when he wasn't answered immediately, did he? He was persistent, and it was when he was his saddest, seemingly lowest point, that's when he was answered, wasn't he? And isn't that how it often can be? See, perhaps when we are struggling and we don't go to God for relief, it's because we aren't desperate enough. And maybe God allows us to suffer or experience hardship to finally get us to the point where we're desperate enough to go to Him and to go to Him and to go to Him until we truly rely on Him and make Him our strength rather than relying on ourselves or some worthless idol. Now, see, unfortunately, we could be like David's enemies and trust in what is worthless just as they did. We, we can look at all kinds of people and things of earth to carry the weight of our lives and bring us wholeness and fullness of joy. But will those things listen and hear and answer when you call? When you're truly desperate, will they be there to save you? If you're trusting in your house or your car or possessions to give you meaning and purpose and the value you crave, will they hear you when you are desperate or alone? or afraid or anxious. Will they? Will they relieve you of your distress? Will they be your rescuer? Will they be your righteousness? Say, of course not, because they're deaf and dumb idols. They were never the rescuer you thought they were, so why would they be your champion when life is hard? See, the remembering that we need is not only who God is like we just mentioned, it's to remember times, this is key, to remember times when God has worked in difficult times in the past. You see? See what he says in, in verse 1? You relieved me in my distress. That's past tense, isn't it? He's saying, I was between a rock and a hard place, and you freed me from it. I was in a bind. I was stuck in a tight place, and you came and you pulled me out. And I remember that. Will you do it again? That's what the psalmist is saying. He knows God to be the only one who could save. He knows him to be gracious, but he also knows from personal experience that God will relieve his people when they are in distress. It happened to him, and so he is recalling to his mind when God rescued him before in order to gain confidence for this new moment of distress. Do you see? There, there isn't one single person in this room who hasn't experienced a time when God pulled them out of a bind. Not a one, or otherwise through some took, brought them through some kind of hardship or suffering. Even if you're somebody who came today, you aren't even sure you believe in God. You can look back at some example in your past where you were inexplicably rescued out of a difficult circumstance. So the principle is simple, isn't it? When you're in the midst of some kind of struggle or suffering, you intentionally recall to your mind how God has over and over again come through in ways that you did not expect in the past. 
Would he let you down now? Is that even in his nature? Has he not shown you he is good and how he has worked in ways unexpected? See, what trials, what trials and distress do, what, what feelings as if you're restricted can do, is it can make us feel like our situation is so unique that we aren't so sure this, if this time we will be relieved. We thus can feel as though our present difficulty is the only real, have you been here? The only real and solid thing to us, to the point that we, even our past experience of relief from trials are forgotten completely. It's like when Samwise put on the one ring, you remember that, on his finger, and Tolkien described him, how he felt as all things around him were not dark but vague, while he himself was there in a gray, hazy world, alone like a small, black, solid rock. That trials could do that to us, which is why we cannot forget the importance of remembering not only who God is in his character and might, but how we have experienced his gracious rescue in the past. David is confident that God will hear him when he calls and thus vindicate him because he is intentionally recalling to mind when he was distressed before and God was gracious to him. That was a big factor in his navigating difficult times in his life. And it should be our impulse too. Sam Crabtree said, Every backward glance that marvels at the milestones of God's past provision helps us to look forward with more hope for divine provisions yet to come. So we remember. Remember who God is in his graciousness and loving kindness and what he has done both in securing our redemption and pulling us out or through past hardships. Second, number two. We remind, remind. What do I mean by that? You look at verses 2 through 5. The psalmist turns from addressing God to addressing his opponents. He, he asks those rhetorical questions that we mentioned a moment ago. And then he tells them, you know, the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. And he tells them, he hears when they call. And you stand against him? He asks. What you should do is what he, this is what he tells them. What you should do is you should tremble and you should cease your sinful ways. You should meditate in your heart. You should repent and believe and then become true worshipers of God. So the situation in which David is writing this psalm, he has enemies who are going after him and they've reached the point of slandering David and attempting to tarnish his reputation or devalue him in the sight of others. But they're also not worshipers of Yahweh. And they love and trust in what is worthless. These are bad people. And they have bad motives. They are cruel and uncharitable. They want to elevate themselves and degrade David. And their attacks make David recall a time when he felt in a bind and he didn't know where else to go but call upon the Lord. This is how his enemies made him feel. And so what does he want to happen to them? No, notice, does he call for their destruction? He doesn't wish for their demise. He isn't rooting for their ruin. He doesn't pull out some kind of karma that simply says, they'll get what's coming to them. He doesn't even lash back at them by slandering them in return or even trying to correct their lies. What does he do instead? He calls for them to repent and believe so that they can become true worshipers of the one true God. Isn't that astonishing? Have you... Here you have people slandering him publicly. 
to try to destroy him with their words, which is a tactic that works for, as James says, the tongue is like a small flame that sets a whole forest ablaze. And David wishes for their good, not their ill. Not not only is he not wishing for their downfall, he wishes they would be saved. You know, before Jesus even walked the earth, it sounds like David is already in tune with the teachings that would come from the Lord of loving enemies and doing good to those who persecute you, doesn't it? David is reminding his enemies there's a one true God. And he's thus calling them to feel as they ought to feel, which is tremble before him and then to repent and believe. He's reminding them of the gospel, so to speak. He's telling them to tremble, which means to fear and be dismayed in response to God's holiness and power because God stands with the redeemed. The the, the people David's enemies are attacking, he is calling them to be shaken to the core so they would stop sinning. He wanted them to meditate, to think about their sins and what they mean before a mighty God and let that meditation and reflection cause them to change their ways. Is this how you are towards your enemies? Is that your approach to those who have hurt you? Is that what we desire for those who have done evil? Do we want good for those who have, at least in part, put us in the situation where we feel like we're between a rock and a hard place? Do we? Maybe not. What do we want to happen to our enemies? Let's just be honest. This is a safe space, right? What do we want to happen to those who we withhold forgiveness from? We want vengeance. Don't we? We want to lash out. If they're slandering us, we want to slander back or find ways to feel superior to them. We want them to get the just desserts for making us feel this way or for wounding us or trying to tarnish our reputation through their tongue of fire. I have felt this way. Have you? When others hurt us, when others call us names or wound us with their actions or words or our fleshly impulse is to lash out, isn't it? I mean, again, who hasn't recited harsh words in their minds of what they want to say to someone? You ever done that? Man, it's quiet. Our desire is that they get their comeuppance. We feel superior to them, and we feel like they should get what's coming to them, or we harbor ill feelings towards them in our hearts and harbor resentment or bitterness. In other words, what we don't want first of all is them to be forgiven and saved by God or for good things to happen to them. Steve Timmis, he says it like this, when someone regards me with disdain, they effectively become my enemy. I don't like them anymore. I'll pretend I don't see them sitting across the room in Starbucks. If I happen to notice that they've spilled their sugar-free vanilla latte all over the floor, I will probably smile. I don't want to love my enemies. In my worst moments, I want to hurt them, gossip about them, undermine them, and generally make them pay. In my better moments, I simply want to ignore, sideline, and ostracize them. If I'm not in a position to retaliate, I can at least wait until someone or something else makes sure my enemy gets their comeuppance. Then I can sit and gloat. I can enjoy the warm satisfaction that they finally got what they deserved. But Jesus says none of that is an option for a follower of his. Deeper than that, none of those desires is an option 
for a follower of his. See, we looked at Jesus' teaching on this many months ago from Luke 6. He said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from the one who takes your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either, give to everyone who begs, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Maybe we're not, perhaps we're not struck with the scandal of what he's saying there because we're so familiar with those words. But in a similar vein, David is seeking the good of his enemies rather than their ill. You see, he, he wants them to be part of the redeemed of God who are set apart because the very fact that his enemies are standing against him shows that they're opposed to God. Their actions show that they don't know God at all. For not only do they show it through their words, but they place their trust in worthless things. David says, the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. In other words, he's saying that he is one who God loves, whom God has chosen for himself, and so that to discredit him is to deny God's love for him. God has set apart his people and will not abandon them to these wicked people who wish to destroy him. But David's response is what? Why don't you tremble before a holy God that you are mocking and repent of your evil, then join in with the redeemed? In other words, get, get this. He wants to turn his enemies into not just friends, but family in the household of God. Do we hope for the good of our enemies or those who have wounded us or caused us distress or have slandered and tried to discredit us? Do we do that? Isn't that what Jesus would have us do? Isn't that what he did to us, the enemy? Would we rather see them saved or damned? These are hard questions, right? We'd rather see them flourish or struggle. They made us hurt. Shouldn't they hurt too? Is that not how we think? In the early 1960s, a federal judge ordered that schools should be integrated, helping lead to the demise of the wretched Jim Crow laws of separate but equal, which made people separate, but they were not equal. But shortly after this judicial decision, you might remember a six-year-old African-American young lady named Ruby Bridges started attending William France Elementary in New Orleans. To tell you how long, this is not that long ago, is it? She's still alive. Every morning, a mob of people, mostly adults, would show up before school started and would scream obscenities at her, calling her names, she's six, threatening to kill her and more. They would say such evil things to this little girl so bad that 25 U.S. Marshals had to escort her to and from school every day. Well, one day... One of her teachers noticed that Ruby was talking while walking into the school as these adults hurled insults and threats to her. And she, she told Robert Coles, who was assigned to be her psychiatrist because of the trauma she must have been going through, right? And, and so Robert asked Ruby what she was saying to this mob. And Ruby said, I, I wasn't talking to the people. I was talking to God. And he said, why were you praying to God? And she said, I wasn't praying for the, I was praying for the people in the street. And he asked, Ruby, why would you want to pray for those people? And she said, don't you think they need praying for? See, Ruby said her parents and her pastor taught her to pray for those who persecute her. And she said that even in the midst of it, 
She prayed for them. Even, in the, even if the impulse may have been to say something back, that six-year-old, far more than those adults hurling vulgarity at her, embodied what Jesus said in Luke 6. And what David models here. Don't trade insult for insult. Bless rather than curse. So what should we do in the face of hardship caused by others? Bless, do not curse. Actually, let's go a step further. Give them the gospel. Call on them to be saved. Tell them to tremble before a holy God and repent and trust Jesus and give up trusting in worthless things and worship the Lord. It is to remind them of the gospel and to pray for their salvation. But see, there's a reason why David doesn't lash out, but we often do. Do you see it? This is very important. See, one of the primary reasons we want to lash out or withhold forgiveness or answer slander for slander is because we want to justify ourselves. We want to be vindicated. We want it to be known that we are the righteous and they are the wicked, that we are as bad as they say we are. When someone slanders or gossips about us, we want to correct their lies, don't we? And why? We want to justify ourselves. When someone says something about us, we want to answer gossip for gossip and tarnish them back. Why? Because we want to justify ourselves. When someone hurts us, we withhold forgiveness. Why? We want to justify ourselves. Miroslav Volf said, Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. So you see how David opens the psalm? Look at verse 1 again. He calls God, literally, my righteousness. David doesn't have righteousness of his own to commend himself to God, and he knows that. David isn't <coughs> part of the godly that are set apart in verse 3 because David is awesome and upright and good on his own. David's righteousness is imputed. It's given to him by the God who is gracious. My friend, if you are a Christian, that means that you have imputed righteousness too. Jesus is your righteousness. Jesus has saved you. Jesus has come and rescued you. Jesus has been your substitute on the cross. Jesus has absorbed the wrath of God that you deserve. Jesus has defeated death by walking out of the grave. God, therefore, has taken Jesus' perfect record and put it in your bankrupt account. Which means that not only is your debt paid, but your bank account, as it were, is full. It means that the verdict has already been rendered. It means that when you die and you stand before the throne of God, He will see Christ's righteousness and not your sin because you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He is your righteousness. You have none of your own. And I say all that to ask this. If you have been justified, why are you trying to justify yourself? When someone slanders us or gossips about us or tries to ruin our reputation or otherwise hurt us, the reason we want to answer venom for venom is because we want to be vindicated. That's a natural impulse. But David isn't worried about that. And why? Because God is his righteousness. God will vindicate him in the end. And he'll vindicate you in the end. So what other vindication do we need? What other justification do we need? But finally, point three, quickly, rest. Says the psalmist in verse 7, you have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. What he's saying is that God is the source of his fullness and joy. Knowing God, says David, 
gives greater gladness than that which comes with full granaries and vats. That's what he's saying. In other words, true joy is found in God and not in having a bunch of wealth or things, uh, things or prosperity or a good reputation. David says, God is all I need so I can rest. That's what he's saying. Even when I'm in a circumstance that causes me to lament, I can rest. Isn't that interesting? See, we're told by the health and wealth and self-help industries that to lament is contrary to having sure faith in God. That's what we're told. We're told that you can't both rest in the Lord and feel distress to the point that you lament and struggle. Further, it says that to be in a lamentable state or to lack wealth is a sign that one is out of favor with God. That's what they tell us. And what a lie from hell that is. Truman says in the article I mentioned in the introduction, quite simply, the evangelical church has sold its soul to the value of Western society and prostituted itself before the golden calf of materialism. Our current decline is thus not in the final analysis simply the result of secularization. It is ultimately the result of the active judgment of God upon that secularization. We have bought into the idolatry of the secular values of health, wealth, and happiness. And until we all, on both the individual and corporate level, realize this, repent of it, and give ourselves in painful sacrifice, sacrificial service to the Lord who bought us, we will see no improvement. David shows us that lament and confident trust can go hand in hand. He shows us that we can both rest in the Lord, trust in His goodness, and struggle when life is hard. He shows us that true gladness is found in the Lord in hard circumstances more than lacking the Lord and having it easy in this world. And in fact, where we find the greatest treasure is when we're going through the most difficult of trials. Corey Ten Boom, this is why she said this, you may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. David finds fullness of joy in the Lord to the point that even if he has nothing but the Lord, he has more than enough. And if that's the case, he can rest. Do you see? Verse 8, he says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. And we have shades of Psalm 3 here, don't we? If you were here last week. Jack said last week, sleeping in the Psalms is more than a simple act of physical sleep, right? David, it doesn't just mean he's simply able to lie down and go to physical sleep. He is declaring this declaration of one's ability to rest because they trust in God's protection and provision. This is how sleep is spoken of in the Psalms. But David has also contrasted himself with the enemies, isn't he? Look what he says. He said, they need to tremble. They need to go to bed, but sit on their beds and meditate on what they're doing and how they should repent and put away uh, trusting in worthless things. They shouldn't sleep. His enemies should not sleep because they are not right with God. But what about the psalmist? He could lie down and he could sleep because he finds safety and rest in the Lord. Sleep is a reminder, Jack touched on this a little bit, didn't he, of our helplessness and our frailty. It's a reminder that we are finite beings. We are creatures who cannot go, go, go all the time. And in the midst of trials, it shows our trust in God to handle what is out of our control. John Piper says on sleep, sleep is a daily reminder from God that we are not God. 
Once a day, God sends us to bed like patients with a sickness. The sickness is a chronic tendency to think we're in control and that our work is indispensable. To cure us of this disease, God turns us into helpless sacks of sand once a day. How humiliating to the self-made corporate executive that he has to give up all control and become as limp as a suckling infant every day. Sleepy says the parable that God is God and we are mere men. God handles the world quite nicely while a hemisphere sleeps. Sleep is like a broken record that comes around with the same message every day. Man is not sovereign. Man is not sovereign. Man is not sovereign. Don't let the lesson be lost on you. God wants to be trusted as the great worker who never tires and never sleeps. He's not nearly so impressed with our late nights and early mornings as he is with peaceful trust that casts all anxiety on him and sleeps. See, if we feel put on a put upon like David did, if we feel stuck or bound, if we feel like we were surrounded by enemies, we wouldn't be able to sleep, right? Like the natural inclination in the circumstance David finds himself in would be to not sleep, but to keep watch. How can I sleep when there are people out to get me? Well, what could they be saying now? But what did they say today? What will they say tomorrow? What will people think of me? How will I handle the pains and uncertainties that this trial brings? Every, again, every single one of us have had sleepless nights, yes? Because something was on our mind. All of us, whatever the anxiety or trouble or struggle or pain was, we have had nights where we lay awake and we toss and we turn or we fear the sun rising because that day that we dreaded has arrived. And David felt that too. But he lays down and he sleeps. Why? Because he remembered who God is and what he's done and he prayed for his enemies, knew he'd be vindicated by God, He made God his only source of lasting joy, and so he slept. He could rest because he rested in God. Think about, if you look at the, some of your translations might say this is an evening psalm or evening prayer. You think about what you want to do at the end of the day if you're in a situation like David's. You know what we do? We want to stew. You ever go home and stew? You want to think up all the zingers you should have said. Or all the zingers you want to say. If I get another opportunity, this is what I'm going to say. You think about the day and all you went through. Or you think about what's coming on the horizon. What can you do? What can you control? How can you vindicate and justify yourself? The psalm tells us, instead of all of that, trust in God and go to sleep. David asked the Lord in verse 6, Lift up your countenance, the light of your countenance upon us. O Lord, which is another way of speaking of divine favor for deliverance. He says, God, make your face shine upon us in a way. It's a way of asking God for his holiness and love and grace to shine upon the undeserving. And ultimately, that was done to us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. See, when we're going through trials, whatever they are, often we want to know how Have you ever asked this, how any of it can result in anything good? We've all been in places where we feel, or you will be, we fail to see the purpose in the pain. We want to know, what is the point of all this? Why must I endure? 
We might think and think and think and not have an answer, and that just adds to the frustration. And this side of heaven, we might never know. But listen, the cross of Christ is a megaphone that tells us that God's glory and our good can come out of the darkest, most painful struggles and trials of life. David Furman said, God never tells us our pain is good, but he uses pain to work for our good in his miraculous and mysterious ways. Whereas J.I. Packer said, if you ask why is this happening, no light may come, but if you ask how am I to glorify God now, there will always be an answer. On the cross, the only perfect man to ever live cried out something akin to, answer me when I call to God and was not answered. Jesus felt abandoned of God as he absorbed the wrath of sinful humanity. And why? Well, so that when you cry out to him to hear your prayers, he will hear and answer every time. Jesus was abandoned of God so that you never would be. And there may be times in your circumstances that make you feel abandoned. But the promise comes from a God who never lies, that he would never leave nor forsake those he has set apart. And because Jesus felt that, it means there will be a day when we close our eyes and sleep and we won't wake up. When we open our eyes again, we'll see the face of this beautiful king. Our vindicator, our righteousness, our champion who went through hell for us and showed that our good and God's glory can result from even the most painful and confusing circumstances. And so, in all that we talked about today, we could add this. Remember the future. Remember where all of history is bending. If you have Jesus and he has you, that means that in the midst of your trials, you can remember that everything you go through is for a purpose, and that one day you will rest for eternity in the presence of your Savior who will wipe away every tear will do away with death and pain and sorrow and will make every sad thing come untrue. We could therefore lament with confidence in Christ our righteousness who holds all things together.